Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Cool People Did Cool Stuff, uh, your podcast about people who were cool and did cool stuff like in the snow the snow was oh fuck i wrote that on later into the script i just fucked it up i'm your host margaret killjoy and with me as this week's guest and probably next week's guest depending on the linearity of when we release these episodes is carl hi carl hey it's great to be here thanks for having me yeah uh carl is the host of in range tv which is where you can go to learn about guns from people who aren't bad people. I hope not. We definitely don't want to be. <laughs> That's such a touchy topic, but we try to touch on things from a very different perspective and bring, um, uh, like, for example, I know we're going to be talking about war today, and war mm-hmm. is something that needs to be talked about as part of the human condition, but it shouldn't be glorified. And that's one of the things, like, we talk about yeah. war, and we talk about guns, and we talk about topics around that on in range, but it's not glorification, or at least it isn't meant to be. Yeah. Um, I, I think y'all do a good job. I actually, even before I heard you on anything else, I've been watching in range TV because when I got into firearms after Nazis doxed me, uh, I was looking for things. I didn't even like, I was just like, Oh, th- this person is not a right winger and isn't telling me to hate everyone. Um, not that everyone on gun YouTube is that right, but it was just something I really appreciated about the, the way you handle it in, you know, who else handles Firearms, well, Sophie, two guns, Lichterman. Wow. What an honor. I'll take that nickname. Yeah. Heard you worse. know what's fun about the nickname from historical speaking is in the Old West, which is not what we're talking about today. But if someone was called a two-gun person, they were actually a, a bad actor because you wouldn't come into town with two guns. It's actually an old, old <laughs> So you're telling me yeah. Margaret is secretly insulting You just got me. secretly dissed, yeah. You know? That's, oh, shit. I, it's fair. I probably deserved it. Uh, well, it's because you just keep dropping one, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, pirates had lots of guns, but that's because they were single shot. Yeah, I mean, you hold ten of them and you had eight shots. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Two wouldn't exactly. go off and the other eight might. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I have a really big axe. Does that make me cool? Yes. Cool. Axes are cool. 
Yeah, of course they're cool. Axes are actually cooler, although the only time they've appeared so far in this story is real bad. But so, uh, do you think you're the greater wrath? I think you're the greater wrath. Sophie, the greater wrath, Lichterman. I'll take it. Okay. That's our producer. And Ian, the lesser rat? No. <laughs> no. What's Ian's nickname? Six guns. Yeah. I'm, I'm out of ideas. Uh, Ian is the, Ian, the audio engineer. That is, that's Ian's name. And on woman, whose name is already a nickname, made our music for us. So, full round of, and I got Killjoy. I'm, I'm good. I already yeah, got you're that fine. Yeah. This week, we are talking about snipers. And we're talking about World War II. It's all an excuse to talk about the Eastern Front in World War II and how complicated it was and to make you all actually think it's interesting because it is interesting, but not always what... Okay, the thing that's really interesting to me about this, and I swear I'll get back to the script at some point, is that I thought I knew this story because I knew the broad strokes. And then when I looked closer, it was a different picture than what I knew from the broad strokes. Like the fact that, as we talked about last week, that the um, Finnish Civil War was not between Soviets or Bolsheviks and capitalists, but instead between Social Democrats and um, bootlickers who wanted to be part of the German Empire. But then also a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about about what comes after the Winter War is going to be a similar thing where it's a different picture than I expected. It's not a pretty picture. We're not talking about pretty stuff today. We're talking about interesting stuff today. Because this is part two in our four-part series about some snipers in World War II. So, Simo Hauha was born in 1905, which is a good year to be a failed revolutionary in Russia. That is the only thing I know about <laughs> 1905. Um, besides that, there's a good punk band called 1905. I don't know if they're named after the 1905 revolution. Probably. Um, you should look them up. Good anarcho-punk from the late 90s, maybe the early aughts. Much like Simo, who was the seventh of eight kids into a Lutheran family, not punk rock at all, in Karelia, uh, which at that point was part of Russian Finland, down in the southeast corner next to and now part of Russia. Um, his family's farm wasn't a nice, good growing soil, big old... It was like mostly forest, right? Because it's not a place full of fertile soil. Um, so he grew up a lot of hunting, and it seems like his only interests, but this is a, there's a lot of mythologizing about him, but his main interests were hard work, hunting, hanging out in the snow with his dog, and also hard work. This guy is completely mythologized. He's maybe the best sniper in history. There's a lot of argument about that. Uh, and he's a national hero. So people ascribe lots of good Finnish values like hard work, humility, and never expressing emotion to him. It might be true. I don't know. That's the vibe I get from him. He's like a finished Johnny Appleseed, but instead of trees, he's planting bullets. Yeah, he's planting Russians. <laughs> um, into Russians. Bullets into <laughs> Russians, which then germinate into trees. Yeah, exactly. Puts little seeds in each bullet. The hollow point is for you covered up with wax. Oh. A little oak tree. I don't know what trees are common there. Probably pine trees. He, he went to school for a hot minute. Just long enough for reading and arithmetic, and then he went back to the farm for his real love, hard work, and snow. When he was 19, he went off to his compulsory 15 months of military service. 
uh, where he was an officer in a bicycle battalion, which will never stop seeming both cool and funny to me every time bicycle battalions come up. Last time, I think, was that the Dutch had bicycle battalions before the Nazis invaded them. He was a crack shot with a rifle. And he did his 15 months. He got out. He went back to hard work and snow farming. I think he was a snow farmer. He stayed active in the Civil Guard, which is basically the reserves. And he won every shooting contest he entered, as far as I can tell. And he just like filled his house up with trophies. Like he just was like, because he was in the shooting club and they would give awards the best. Could you imagine how annoying it would be to be in the same shooting club as this man? <laughs> ah, Simo showed up. Let's just go home. No yeah. point today. Yeah. Well, it, then you're just like arguing who gets second, you know? Like, you know what? That's still like that in the competition circles in a different way. There's certain times you go to an event and someone shows up and you you just know that you're not first that day. Whether you would have yeah. had a chance at first or not, irrelevant. You know you're not because you know who will be. Yeah. That makes sense. It seems like shooting is a a skill that the the gradients of levels like are Yeah, it it would make sense to me that there's like certain people I'm like like I know a lot of people I can outshoot and a lot of people who can outshoot me. It's a weird thing. It's something that you can put a lot of time and effort into and and you can always increase your skill, but there's mm-hmm. like your skill only increases based on some level other level of also included natural ability. Natural ability won't get you there by itself. You have to practice to get it. But your natural ability plus the time you put in ultimately gives you your skill points, whatever you want to do in like a role-playing game kind of way. So there are some people whose natural ability is just there and they put the time in and they will always beat you. And that's just how it works. Yeah. Um, Which is why I'm glad I, I don't even stick to shooting competitions. I stick to plinking in my yard. But... That's why I'm glad that I don't enter wars on a regular basis. Um, I'd be more likely to enter competitions. Well, that war is a shooting competition with a part-time. <laughs> yeah. So he he was real humble about it, though. Which also, I, I feel like I don't want to be mad at, right? He shows up, he's going to win, and then he's going to stand at the back of the group photo. Which, one, if I'm a photographer, I kind of hate him. He's five foot three. Mm. Like... He wants to stand at the back of the photo. Finns, not a traditionally tall people. Another thing that people don't understand about, because people assume that Finns are Swedes, and this is not true. Not a traditionally tall people necessarily, but five foot three is not towering over anyone. And um, and he's standing at the back of these things. And so he's like going to win, and then he's going to stand at the back. And like everyone's like, yeah, 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 you're the most humble. And he's like, I do win the award for most humble. But he actually seemed really genuine about it. His rifle of choice was basically everyone on the planet's rifle of choice at this time, or at least everyone in that corner of the planet, which was the Mosin Nagant. This was developed in the 1890s. It is a bolt-action rifle. Uh, every time you shoot, you have to manually cycle the next round into the chamber. I'm clearly not explaining this for Carl's sake. I'm clearly explaining this for the audience's sake. It holds five rounds in a fixed magazine, which means you can't like pop the magazine out and put in a new one. The magazine stays in the gun, and you feed another five rounds into it, You either have to do it one at a time or with what's called a stripper clip, which is a little clip of metal that holds five rounds for faster reloading. And this was an advancement over muzzle loaders, but it is not an easy gun to shoot fast. This was the gun that helped the Russians in the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905, which means it didn't help them enough because the Russians lost the shit out of that war. Uh, It was used by all sides of the Russian Civil War and by all sides of the Winter War which we're coming to. 
Yeah, the Mosin Nagant is is a really interesting rifle in terms of it's one of the earliest bolt action designs that was one would say is modern and viable from a modern perspective. And as many yeah. of them did, it held five rounds in a box magazine. It was chambered in a cartridge that, at least in this instance, we're talking about here with the Russians mm-hmm. and the Finns with around 762 by 54 rimmed. And that's interesting mm-hmm. because rimmed is not modern. And it's even though the Soviet, or Soviet, the Russians now, shades of gray there, shades of gray, mm-hmm. um, they still use this round. And a rimmed round means that it has this little extended piece of metal at the end of the cartridge itself that is a rim. Most modern cartridges are rimless. There's a little divot cut out from the back of the cartridge, and that's what's used to extract the cartridge from the chamber. But these are rimmed. It means that when when you stack them on top of each other, imagine like a little pie dish on the back of each round. And if you stack them incorrectly and your gun isn't designed to work with it properly, you'll have something called rim lock where the rim of the cartridge in front of it will prevent the rim from or behind it will prevent it from feeding when you try to cycle the bolt. So the Mosin Nagant has this interesting system called the interrupter that when you cycle the bolt, it only allows one round to pop up into the feeding angle to chamber it into the chamber because if it didn't, you could have a rim lock issue. The other gun that deals with that is the old Enfield from Britain with their rimmed round. But the Mosin Nagant did that. It's also one of the earliest bolt action modern guns that dealt with smokeless ammunition versus black powder. And one of the things and the reasons you see it common in these environments is while it is I think by most modern statements, not a good bolt action rifle. It is slow, clunky, and hard to use, and in some instances jams a lot. Mm-hmm. It is sort of better in some ways in very low temperature environments. It does work well in cold. Okay. That makes a lot of sense with what we're what I've learned. I um my experience with the Mosin-Nagant is that it's the only gun I've ever handled that went off without anyone pulling the trigger. Oh, um, that's because nice. my my friend had a broken one. Everyone was fine because we followed the rules of firearm safety. And then we yeah. put down the gun. And then my friend who actually worked in at a gun manufacturer or something stopped shooting that gun. Did um, it happen when the bolt was closed? I bet you the firing pin was flo- frozen forward or something. I, I couldn't know, tell you. I don't know. Uh, yeah. this, this was before I knew shit about guns. So, so these things are like prolific. They made the Russians, yeah. the Soviets made size seven gazillion of these. And yeah. for a long time, in the market, American market, wherever, these were the cheapest guns you could buy. You could get most of the guns for like 60 bucks. You yeah. can't anymore, but you could. And I'm um, so sad I missed that. Yeah, I mean, they're neat as a history. They're not great. I, I don't think it's like a useful firearm for anything, but... I mean, they can be still... I mean, they are intrinsically, as bolt actions are, very accurate, mm-hmm. right? It is, and that's something we'll get into, I'm sure, talking about today with SEMO, but yeah. it's an accurate rifle, and it's an accurate round. The Russian yeah. manufactured ones tend to be very clunky and hard and sometimes bring a hammer with you, a rubber mallet, because they'll get stuck. It's, <laughs> called, it's just the bolt will get stuck closed and you have to beat it open with a, with a mallet. What's <laughs> cool about Finnish stuff is the Finns took Russian Mosin Nagants, reworked them, put better sights on them, and a Finnish Mosin Nagant, even though it was made on Russian machines, mm-hmm. is a wholly different gun. It's actually okay. reliable, doesn't jam, and is really good. Okay. Well, if you hear of one for $60, please let me know. Finish most of the guns. Command a premium. But if I see one for $60, I'll keep you in mind. I appreciate it. So, uh, so Simo, he's, he's in this hunting club, and he's doing his thing. He's hunting Santa Claus. He's winning medals. Uh, he's pulling off wild feats, like the, the one that gets cited all the time, but I'm like, I, I can fucking dream of doing this. He would, with a Mosin Nagant, 
he would hit a target 150 meters away 16 times in one minute with no scope and a rifle that only holds five rounds at a time. That's that's a real feat from a stripper clip perspective because you mentioned a stripper clip, which is the way you get yeah. five rounds quickly back into the gun instead of single one at a time. Yeah. And this is another deficiency of the most the gun. The stripper clips are wonky and tend to cut you when you use them. So if he's doing <laughs> that, he's doing a good job and not hurting himself in the process. So yeah, that's impressive. Yeah. yeah. I can't find a fucking word about his politics. Um, if you know, please let me know. There are a million books written about him and I have not read all of them or most of them. Um, and which has me thinking he wasn't particularly political because otherwise people would be trying really hard to claim him. Or he was like kind of right wing and people don't want to talk about it because being right wing is embarrassing. I don't know. But it seems like the things that he did were all legit and cool. His priorities were defending his home and being a cool guy who liked nature and farming and hard work. He talks about hunting and respecting the forest in a way that reminds me a lot of the animist roots of Finnish culture, honestly. Like he talks about like the the spirit of the animals that he's killing and and stuff like that. Yeah, I've never seen a thing about it as well. Everything I've ever seen about Simo is exactly that, which is stalwart defender of Finland and an amazing sniper. Yeah. And yeah, I I think that's was his thing. So he's doing his thing. He never gets married. Uh, Then the USSR invades his home. And specifically his home, like he is in the line of, um, he is in Karelia and uh, people are like, he defended his home successfully and Finland stayed Finland. He loses his home, spoiler alert, uh, during this war, the Soviet Union takes Karelia and his home. But he's like, all right, back into the army. That's what I'm here for. And he starts off as a machine gunner uh, and half of his kill count was a a submachine gun, the Suomi KP-31. And it's one of the first really good, you talked about this a little bit before, um, but what I've, what I've learned about it is that it's one of the first really good submachine guns. It's way more accurate than most submachine guns. It also has a longer barrel than what you think of when you think of a submachine gun. Um, it's heavy as fuck for a submachine gun, which helps with recoil and muzzle rise. And later, if you read about it, it's like a 71 drum magazine, but actually when he was using it, I believe it was more likely a 30, a 40 round drum magazine uh, and then had an interchangeable barrel so you could swap it out when it got too hot. That's what I got about it. Honestly, it is one of the best submachine guns. Like it's it's there's more modern generations of submachine guns now that are mm-hmm. maybe safer for lack of a of a better phrase. But the uh the the KP31, the Suomi is is a fantastic gun. It's well machined, it's well made, the parts mm-hmm. are interchangeable, the magazines work from one gun to another. It's incredibly reliable. It's weight, and some of them have a muzzle brake on it. A muzzle brake is a little, some cuts in the front of the barrel that reduce climb when it's firing in full auto. It yeah. has a high rate of fire, typically like 900 rounds a minute or even a little more. But with the weight and the muzzle brake and the capacity, you can pull what are called bursts where you press the trigger and let out like say three, four, five rounds and reliably hit at distances with that sub gun that you normally couldn't with others. Like, 100, 200, even 300 round aimed fire at a man-sized target with a uh, Suomi is totally viable. In fact, I have a video, not to promote in-range, but I have a video on in-range where we were shooting one of those original Suomis and uh, you can see the, what's called beat zone where the bullets are hitting the berm and Mm -hmm. it's, it's extremely accurate. They're, they're a pleasure to shoot actually. Yeah. I get the impression he did some of his sniping with this thing. Oh yeah, I believe he did a lot of work with the so with the. Oh, he did a. Gun. He absolutely did a lot of work with it. Um, yeah, 
That's because sniping is always mm-hmm. considered like, and I, I don't want to get too far into mm-hmm. what we're getting into, but no, like no, so no. many people think about sniping as this long range precision work. And there's some truth to that sometimes, but sniping is actually more field craft than it is precision fire. And that actually seems to be like most of the people that he shoots are going to be a hundred to 150 meters away from him when he's shooting them, um, which is very different than like modern sniper stuff. As I understand where you have a lot of like killing people at a half mile, whatever, you know, they're in the forest and shit. Yeah. And the fact that he knows a fucking forest is why he's so effective. Yeah. If you, yeah. In Finland, like the idea of shots, long range shots are not a commonality there. Like you said, it's almost all forested. There's not yeah. a lot of large areas to see for very far field craft applies. And so, yeah, making 100 or 150 meter hits with a, a KP-31 submachine gun is is totally uh, doable. Okay. So, USSR invades. And they have tanks, planes, artillery, and just fuck tons of people. No one in history has cared less about the value of his own people than Joseph Stalin. Um, if there is a problem... Throw Soviets at it. That is how he gets shit done. Um, on the other side, the Finns have a grand total of 32 tanks, 114 aircraft, compared to like 3,000 and 4,000, 3,000 tanks and 4,000 airplanes on the Soviet side. But they've got skis, and unlike the Soviets, they've got weather-appropriate clothing, um, which is funny because the Soviets are even from a fucking cold place. Not what as cold fuck? as Finland. Yeah. yeah, it's true. At least not as cold, or at least not as in terms of, maybe that's not fair. They have places that are as cold as Finland. Right. But, but the they average have a lot of soldier is not equipped for a place like Finland. Totally. The Finns mostly don't have uniforms. They just have a military hat and whatever clothes they were able to show up to duty in, uh, which means that they have a lot of white clothes for snow, and they're actually camouflaged. They've, actually, they've got morale on their side, and they grew up in these woods. And so they fuck the Soviets up. At the end of this 105, I think, day war, Stalin loses like 150,000 soldiers. Finns lose about 26,000. That's a really good... I don't want to be one of the 26,000 who die, right? But that's a fucking good ratio. The Soviets are still going to win, sort of, but they're not going to steamroll like they thought they would. And it is quite likely that this fierce defense is the reason that Finland is around today. I don't know whether or not Stalin could have held Finland or not, but Simo specifically, we'll get to the quote later, speaks about how this is why there's a Finland. So he's a machine gunner, and he's fighting guerrilla style. He's fighting under a man named Arne Edward Utalainen, a.k.a. the Terror of Morocco, who is not a good person. He fought in the Finnish Civil War on the white side when he was 14 years old. I think he was, like, helping load ammunition or something. And then he went, and there wasn't enough war happening, so he went and joined the French Foreign Legion. He fought in the colonial forces occupying Morocco, earning his shitty nickname. But apparently, he didn't, like, really, like, he wasn't, like, such an effective soldier that, like, people were, like, the terror of Morocco while he was in the French Foreign Legion. It's when he got back to Finland. People were, like, oh, where were you? Morocco? Oh, yeah, you're, like, the terror of Morocco, aren't you? There's this probably apocryphal story about his leadership style where he, one time during a firefight, in order to convince his friends, his soldiers, sorry, not friends, he's an asshole, uh, to convince them to not worry, he pulls out a chair and he just like sits there in the firing line. He's like, what the fuck? Keep fighting, you fucking cowards or whatever, you know? Which is always like a, a a cool move when the like officer fights in the front line, whatever. Anyway, he's also known for getting drunk and beating his own soldiers. He's not a cool guy at all. His own nephew wrote, 
and I'm going to quote this. Arne was a bad person. That's the quote. I didn't cut the sentence short. There's not a but after it. The, the full quote is like a paragraph about like, people call him a war hero. I guess that's technically true. God, he's a piece of shit. Yeah, I mean, like, like, speaking from like just Finnish, like my knowledge of Finnish culture, that sentence is all you need to know. That says it all, right? We don't need to add more to that. This is bad yeah. person. Okay, yeah. I'm gonna take your. I'm gonna believe that. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? You should believe also. You should believe that every one of these ads or goods and services was made in good faith with your best interests at heart, and not within the context of a capitalist system that only rewards short-term gain of profit. Nothing says altruism like corporations, so I believe you. Yeah, you gotta be rich to be a philanthropist. You gotta steal everyone's shit in order to... Here's some advertisers. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hey girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do find this missing girlfriend and tell her story with the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one like my producer Anna oh my god my friend Dr. Mindy Shapiro hi it's Dr. Shapiro and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner and of course Gail's sister Elaine Katz having no closure it kills you join us as we try to solve a 35 year old cold case it's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. So Simo started off not as a sniper, right? But as a unit leader, submachine gunning Russians. Uh, overall, the Finns had a strategy where like, okay, so the Russians have like tanks and shit. 
And there's only certain paths and roads that they can move on. Like one thing I read was like it took a lot while to like pack down the snow enough to get a fucking tank across, right? So there was a lot of long single file marches into Finland. Basically, there was a lot of like, let's get ambushed. And so the Finns were like, okay, we can do that for you. They would cut off the tanks from the rest of their support and then just fuck them up by using Molotov cocktails, which I am not going to tell you how to make. You can look it up yourself with a VPN. But it is a homemade firebomb that is easy as shit to make. I am not advocating that anyone do it because the cost-benefit analysis of making Molotovs in the U.S. is grim. They will not advocate anyone break any laws. You know, Molotov got a cocktail and Ribbentrop did not. That's true. Mm. That's fucked up. That's Nazi erasure. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> so, the history of the Molotov cocktail, fortunately, I, uh, James Stout, Channel Zero Network, uh, what? No, Cool Zone Media. The problem is, is that I'm on two podcast <laughs> networks with the same fucking initials, basically CZN and CZM, and I get them mixed up constantly. Cool Zone Media journalist James Stout I know has him. an article. <gasps> He's cool. Most famous as a bicyclist. He has an article about the origin of Molotovs in the Winter War. Quote, the war began with a bombardment of Helsinki, which Soviet Foreign Minister Vyacheslav Molotov claimed was a humanitarian aid drop. The Finns, retaining their dark humor, called the bombs Molotov's bread baskets. Soon, Everything bad was associated with Molotov. Blackout curtains used to stop bombers from spotting urban areas uh, from overhead by blocking out visible light from the windows at night were called Molotov curtains, and bombing planes were called Molotov's chickens. So the Finns found a great pairing for the bread baskets and churned out at an industrial scale by distilleries the Molotov cocktail with which to toast the invader. Which, by the way, if I might add, mm-hmm. when you look into this, if you do, uh, listener, um, the Finnish Molotov cocktails are actually interestingly better than what you think of. They're not as crude. They're actually produced and manufactured in almost like um, how do I put this? They're not. They're not. They're not. They're not rogue at all. They're, there's they're a design improvised. around them that's better than most. Yeah. Oh, interesting. They have their own ignition systems and such that are better. Okay. That's actually really interesting. Um, yeah, they made their own thing. Uh, not yeah. to go too deep into it, but instead of just mm-hmm. a burning rag, they actually had like mm-hmm. burning flares that were taped to the glass. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. Yeah. I just know someone who went to jail for at a talk. Someone asked him how he had already gone to jail for burning some shit as part of the Animal Liberation Front. And at the talk, someone was like, oh, how did you burn the things? And he described how he burned the things. And so then he went back to prison. Yeah, so I'm yeah, like yeah. real fucking nervous about that shit. No, totally. But it is an interesting topic. And if you look into yeah. it, it's interesting to see how the Finnish Molotov cocktail is actually greatly improved over the, let's say, original design. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Do you know it was originally a fascist invention? No, I actually didn't. The Spanish fascists in 1936 under Franco invented the bottle bomb as we understand I it now. didn't know that. That's fascinating considering how it's seen now. I right? know, absolutely. It's the, yeah. the 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 weapon of the working class. Um, it's like the Molotov cocktail and the machete, right? Those two things yeah. are like so iconic. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, both have been used by good people and bad people. Mm-hmm. 
1936, uh, Spanish fascist troops started using them. Um, and then soon enough, both sides of the Spanish Civil War, including the good guys, were using them. But they got their name during the, the Winter War a couple years later. And they were a great way to fuck up a tank. I actually don't know as much about this. I've, I've heard basically it was like the old tanks weren't enclosed. And so if you like set the outside on fire, it's like causing a lot of problems and it like forces the tank people to get out and you can shoot them or something. The rear of the tanks usually have a ventilation system, which allows for the intake of air for the people inside to actually survive or ventilation system for the actual engine. Cause it needs air to be able to do combustion and drive. And so uh. the target on the tank were the ventilation systems at the rear. So if you threw fire into that, it would leak down into the ventilation system and either a make it impossible to survive inside by breathing, or it would choke out the engine or get to a part that would cause the rest of the tank to combust. Okay. Yeah, and they were... I love when there's a... I remember reading this article a million years ago called Bashing the Laser Rangefinder with a Rock about, like, low-tech solutions to modern problems, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they have these low-tech solutions to modern problems, but uh, but they do it at an industrial scale, and they do it with their own actual carefully engineered... They put their own flare on it. Eh? eh? Ah, Yes. So Finns on skis are fucking up the tanks, uh, burning the shit out of them after cutting them off from everyone else. And pretty soon, Simo's commander needs a specific Russian sniper take out, taken out who keeps killing Finnish officers. And I think this guy's off his officer Arne is like, I don't I don't want to get shot. Hey Simo, can you go uh can you go shoot a dude? And Simo's like, Yeah, I can go shoot a dude. And he shifts over to sniper and counter sniper duty. Back to the Mosin Nagant. He was offered one with a scope, supposedly. He had no interest for a few reasons. First, and I think this is the actual main reason, the first and foremost, he'd never trained with a scope. That just wasn't this that that wasn't what he was used to. But this worked out really well for him. One, you have to raise your head an inch or two higher to sight a scope. Two, uh, and if you're trying not to get shot, the higher you lift your head, the more likely you are to get shot. Um, apparently the glass could fog up in the cold and this is minus 40 degrees out. And the cool thing about minus 40 degrees is I don't have to tell you whether it's Celsius or Fahrenheit because it's the one place where they both meet. Ah, the neutral ground of temperatures. Yeah, the dead man's but that's, land of... Mm-hmm. That's specifically true about the Mosin Nagant sniper, which is the most common iteration. It's called the 9130, but the scope is really high off of the... Um, the, the comb of the stock where you would normally rest uh-huh. your cheek to look down the iron sights. So you do this thing called chin weld where you kind of rest your chin on the stock to see it. And the scope isn't bore centric. It's kind of off to the left of the actual rifle bore. And so is this like besides a fog ammunition in it? Well, it's just kind of up and high so you can get your hands and you can't use stripper clips anymore when it's got a, yeah. there's another example of going with yeah. iron sights because the scope is on there. You can no longer use the stripper clip and feed quickly. You have to feed individual rounds one at a time. Yeah. But it's also, the scope has to be higher and offset so that you can actually throw the bolt and cycle the gun. Ah, okay, okay. And all that turns into harder to shoot. So yeah. him being already proficient with iron sights makes a lot of sense that he would stick with it. Yeah, no, totally. And then the other thing is that half of how he killed enemy snipers is he'd like wait till the sun reflected off of him. Like he'd literally wait all day till the sun was in the right place, reflect off of the enemy sniper, off the scope, and then shoot them in the face. And Simo wanted to go as long as possible before he got shot in the face. So that's a huge, you know what? I, I, I spend every day of my life trying to not get shot in the face. That's a good goal. Yeah. I actually take it for granted. Um, <laughs> but 
Not this is the United States. You never know. <laughs> I know. I'm like, wait, I, I got my concealed carry permit because Nazis sent me pictures of my family. <laughs> like, anyway, fuck those people. Uh, so he's the original no scope guy and he is fucking methodical. He works sometimes alone, sometimes with a spotter. This actually like fucks up his like kill count, you know, and like as if it's as if life is a video game uh, because only confirmed kills get to count. And if no one's around to see if a tree, but not the Soviet falls in the forest. So he goes out at night. He gets himself nice and cozy in a spot, uses natural cover, lots of snow. He wears all white. He wraps a white bandage around the stock of his rifle and apparently he shot, I only found this in one place, but apparently he shot from a sitting position, not prone. Because, and because he's in a foxhole or natural depression anyway, and he's not very tall, this is not a problem for him. I mean, it clearly worked. Then the sun would rise. He would do a murder or 30. He aimed center mass instead of for the heads. Sorry, video game players of the world. And then the sun would set and he'd leave. And before he, when he was setting up, he'd pack down the snow in front of his position so the report didn't set up a cloud of snow. Other versions are that he poured a little bit of water on it so that it would freeze. And he also sometimes supposedly kept snow in his mouth to keep his breath from showing. He sustained himself by chewing on bread and sugar that he just like had in his pockets. And then he laid still in the middle of the fucking winter, coldest winter in years, and waited. The Soviets had green uniforms. Made them very easy to pick out and then pick off and of course it didn't help that stalin had just purged 70 to 80 percent of all of his top leadership during one of his fits of paranoia so there's not a lot of good leadership in the soviet army at this point there's one story that might is probably apocryphal but one of my finnish friends told me about simo i remember when i first like asked my finnish anarchist friends about simo i was like expecting them to all be like are you fucking kidding me? Fuck that guy's a national hero. Um, and instead, at least the person I talked to was like, oh my God, let me tell you stories about him. And one of the stories I heard is that he would basically just get buried under the snow and then he'd wait for a rabbit to go over his head and then he would like stick a knife up through the snow to catch the rabbit and then like bring it down in and eat it raw. I have no source on this besides a fucking drunk friend of mine at a party but I wouldn't put it past Simo, is what I'll tell you. No, I mean, it kind of tracks. And like everything you just mentioned about what Simo would made him effective at what he was doing was like mentioned earlier in the discussion was fieldcraft, not to undermine yeah. the marksmanship, but this is all fieldcraft. Totally. No, that is. Yeah. Uh, I remember like reading something that was like with no sniper experience. And I'm like, the guy was a moose hunter since he was like a baby. Like, anyway, whatever. Um, soon he gets the nickname The White Death. The general version of the story is that the Russians started calling him this because they're afraid of him. Um, the far more likely version of the story is that the Finns started saying that the Russians started calling him this because it's, cause it's good propaganda to be like, ah, everyone's afraid of the White Death, uh, which apparently was also like the word for just like dying in the fucking snow is the White Death. I don't know. It's a know? cool name. I think you should take it. It's awesome. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Someone did. Yeah. Absolutely. The Russians are really fucking not excited about him. The Finns also started calling him the magic shooter, but no one mentions that nickname in the English language accounts because it does not sound cool or metal in English. Sorry, magic shooter, white death translates better. Several times, Soviets call down artillery strikes just 
get him uh, to flush him out, but he wouldn't flush. He actually apparently like turned down orders. Like his commander was like, get the fuck out of here. They're fucking artillery. And he's like, I'm good. And he just sits there and he lets the artillery come and go like a bad storm. One time shrapnel um, caught his coat on fire. Apparently there's other versions where he like lost his coat in it, but it like fucks up his coat, but it doesn't get him. Enemy snipers are constantly trying to hunt him, but they all die mysteriously. And by mysteriously, I mean from bullets that Simo has shot them with. The same Finnish friend telling me apocryphal stories says, and one time shooting people with a rifle wasn't effective enough. Too many people were coming through the pass. So we just went down to the enemy camp and submachine gun, submachine gunned them all down. Only grammatically correct. And I don't know. I mean, he absolutely killed a fuck ton of people with a submachine gun and a sniper rifle. I don't know if that particular story is true or not. Overall, the war wasn't going well for anyone. The Russians wanted to steamroll, but no steamrolling was possible. Kind of the original like Zerg Rush army. The Finns wanted to drive the Russians out, but no driving out was possible either. And in February, a new wave of Russians hit the country and the Finns fell back to a line that they were trying to hold. Sniping wasn't the only thing he was doing. He was still a commander. He was still fighting as a machine gunner and during, during some battles. And during one battle, like a week maybe before the end of the war, an exploding bullet hit him in the face. Now, I know what you're thinking, Carl. You've never heard of an uh, exploding bullet before. But I googled and I found a video uh, explaining exploding bullets with a nice man named Carl explaining it. <laughs> Which is basically uh-huh. that these bullets were initially designed to help zero rifles, making little explosions when they hit. So maybe it's a little less like some of the what I read is like, and those evil Soviets used exploding rifles because they hate humanity. It sounds like these were more like what was used for piercing armor. And also if you're shooting someone in the face, you're shooting someone in the face. What's your take on this? Actually, even more than that, they were used most of the most common use of the exploding bullet or um, was... Uh, for hit indicators from coaxial machine guns and tanks. Mm-hmm. So when the tanks would fire, they would fire machine gun rounds to try and see if their ranging estimate was correct. And when the bullets would hit the enemy tank, these exploding rounds would make visible sparks and explosions and smoke when they were hitting the armor of the enemy tank, which okay. would help them zero the main gun. That same concept of technology got put into aircraft for armor-piercing incendiary, which is rounds that are intended to cause fire or flame inside the tanks of the gas tanks of, of enemy aircraft. Okay. But they are also standard rifle rounds that with can be fired in standard rifles most of the time. And so they started getting used very much so on the Eastern front, as well as in Finland by both sides for high value targets, because once ah. they penetrate a couple inches of material, they detonate. And of course, if you are doing that in a person's chest, that is a confirmed kill for sure. In fact, yeah. Um, uh, we show some of that in the video. We, we shoot this ballistic soap stuff, and you can see them detonating. It's really just an inertial firing pin with a primer and some, some sort of explosive compound. And when the bullet decelerates, the firing pin hits the primer, and then it causes it to detonate inside the target. And okay. what's, uh, what's interesting about that is... Um, it's, uh, again, uh, a, a maybe not cool person that didn't do cool stuff, but there's a book, <laughs> Sniper on the Eastern Front, which was a, a Nazi sniper, and he talks mm-hmm. about the use of this ammunition against high-value targets, typically Russian or Soviet officers. 
and describes in grim detail about their like heads turning into like mist and such from it. No, that makes a lot of sense because I I've read a there's a lot of different accounts about this particular like his injury that took him out and stuff, you know, and some was like a lucky shot and some was like it was an enemy sniper and that makes an enemy sniper seem way more likely, right? Because if it was like because there's almost certainly someone who's like at any given battle, it's like your job is to kill Simo, you know. If SEMA was your target, it would make sense to use explosive ammunition for a high-value target, because if you got yeah. the hit, you would hope that it would be... Uh, amazingly, he survived it, but yep. like, it's not likely to survive an exploding round hit. They're, they're, they're quite lethal. Yeah. Yeah. On March 6, 1940, SEMO took an exploding bullet to the jaw, destroyed half of his face. He went down thousand versions of how he was saved um the version that seems to line up the most with his own recollections is that basically people were like we are not fucking leaving until we find simo like we are not leaving this and so probably at the like bottom of a pile of bodies someone's like oh that leg's twitching or whatever you know but he wasn't dead he was just missing half of his face and looked real dead and was unconscious for most of it and so he was dragged off to safety by the time he came to the war was over and the Finns had lost after a 105-day war. He read a newspaper report about his own death and sent a correction to the paper. Stalin, the way that the war had come to an end, Stalin had kept trying to install this puppet government, right? So he wasn't negotiating with the actual Finnish government. He couldn't because he he didn't respect them. They weren't a a legitimate force. But somewhere around like January or so, I can't remember exactly, he gave up. He was like, all right, no one fucking believes my fake government. I guess I'll start talking to the actual Finnish government. And so the Finns had to give up half of Karelia, which was Simo's homeland, as well as the city of Viporo, uh, which is one of the largest cities in the country. Um, it, there's different... It was either the second biggest or the fourth biggest, depending on which population survey you're looking at. But it was a big fucking important place. A huge chunk of the Finnish population lived in this area. Finland is a small country and most of the people live way in the south and Karelia is as south as you can get in Finland at first the government was like no you can't fucking have our second biggest city what the fuck Um, and they kept writing the western powers Sweden and France for military support they kept being like hey we we're a democracy we don't want to become Bolsheviks could you give us some stuff and everyone's like oh what's that I can't hear you over the sound of not listening to you Sweden I, I think I, th- I think they had this thing where like they were like look we're not going to stop volunteers from going over but we're not going to do anything beyond that I think I might be mixing that up with like I read about like five Finnish wars to write this fucking thing anyway 12% of the Finnish population has to flee the conquered territory because they're genociders right that is the thing is the people who just genocided all the Finns took a bunch of Finland everyone has to leave so they lost but they took out so many Russians in the process. Stalin himself said, and I cannot tell if this is a direct quote or a paraphrase, but I'm going to present it as a quote. The Finns were a primitive people, the inhabitants of marshes and forests, but they had stubbornly defended their independence, unlike the Belgians, a civilized people who surrendered right away. If they had been Finns instead of Belgians, I thought they would have fought hard against the German aggression. Um, so Stalin did this like weird kind of racist like you know oh you primitive strong people you backwards fighty assholes anyway whatever 
kind of shades of something you'd hear way, way later in a much different conflict with two different countries of the Viet Cong. Oh, huh. I don't know yeah, about that. Because that's how they were labeled too. Yeah, no, that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So Simo exits world history at this point. He, I mean, we know what happened to him. He doesn't disappear, but uh, he wanted to fight in the ongoing hostilities against the USSR, and we'll get to those, but he was too wounded. He had 26 surgeries, and his face was reconstructed with grafts from his hip. He lived a, a long and healthy life, probably not a happy life. Um, he preferred to never marry. He just hunted moose and raised dogs and tried to stay out of the limelight. But he would like go hunting with like the president and shit. There's this centrist guy from the agrarian party named uh, Kek Konen, who was president of Finland for 26 years, who was anti-communist, but also anti-fascist. He was a centrist guy. I don't know. Simo struggled with PTSD, it seems like. Um, You know, talks about him like having night terrors the rest of his life. Most reports say that he was fairly lonely and he was isolated from society by his experience and like mostly only hung out with fellow vets. He wrote a memoir and he wrote it like right after, uh, like while he's recovering in the hospital, I think. And he refers to the around 500 people he'd killed as his sin list. It is unclear to me, someone probably knows, uh, but no one I read about knows. No, it's unclear if this is an earnest expression of like penance or whether it was just dry finish humor. It doesn't like, I don't think he's like, sorry, right? But like, you kind of can't tell whether it's just a dry, dry humor or whether it was a, you know, a religious thing in a more penitent way. When asked if he has felt remorse near his 96th birthday, he said, I did what I was told to do as well as I could. There would be no Finland unless everyone else had done the same. And he also talked about how he didn't hate the Soviet soldiers, even though he knew that he had to fight them. His actual sniper count is hard to confirm. 505 is the most common number of confirmed kills. It's also the lowest number by far of the people of what is ascribed to him. It's been a while since you've told me there's something I need to buy. Yeah. Oh, what? what? I, I can't believe I left that out. If you buy a cool people who did cool stuff notebook, you can keep track of your confirmed. Nope. Nope. Probably shouldn't. Nope. No. Uh, if you. What did we advertise last time? There was like something I liked advertising last time. It's like something more positive. Um, go you rescue use it to a write dog. Recipes. Oh, that's rescue true. Rescue dogs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, don't get your dogs from breeders. Get your dogs from rescues. Because you should be raised right to understand that that's where dogs come from. The ones who need homes. That's dogs are great. Uh. Also, these other ads that if you were subscribed. This podcast Mm -hmm. is sponsored by Anderson, my dog. Yeah. He rescued me. It's true. Sophie was like bleeding out in the street after getting hit by a car. And then ran out uh, there and applied a tourniquet. Yeah. It's an impressive dog. I know. Yeah, I know. She doesn't even have have thumbs. It's incredible. No. Fucking good at it. Here's some other ads. Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. 
Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. back okay so his actual sniper count is hard to confirm 505 is the most common number of confirmed kills uh but this is the lowest number also that is ever ascribed to him there's an expectation that this leaves off a lot like times where multiple people shot the same target or no one was around to confirm i cannot imagine being in a shooting war and then being like fucking legolas and gimli being like 43 44 like i just i can't imagine this process some people think that the number is closer to 800. Other people are like, look, this guy's like real good, but this is all propaganda. The number is probably like 200 or something. I actually think that the around 500 is a pretty safe guess. He is not a braggart. That is not a thing that one could ascribe to this man who stands at the back of his fucking photos, you know? He's seen as the most successful sniper in history, which is incredibly disputed and probably not true. And also, whatever. I don't know. There's non-Western snipers with counts that are presented as way higher. Those are harder to verify. There's also a fuck ton of Soviet snipers from the war against the Nazis with very similar counts to his. And then the other thing is that life isn't a video game. And we don't actually keep score this way. I don't know. What have you heard about like, is it in, in in your world? Is it like, oh yeah, no, Simo's number one, or is it like, oh, it's disputed? Or there's a handful of these of these prominent, famous snipers that are. Um, it's interesting. Sometimes their fame doesn't come from their supposed 
kill count, but from other things they've done in terms of like amazing shots or whatever. Like, yeah. Um, Carlos Hathcock is an example of that. His marksmanship was like considered legendary and some of the things he did in that regard. But, and that also has a high number as well. But in general, um, I, the, the, I, I, the consensus seems to be that CMO might be, if not the top, he's, he's definitely right up there. Yeah. Yeah. And what matters, the reason he's on Cool People Did Cool Stuff, one, is because I want to talk about something real messy. And two, because um, he was a farmer who, alongside countless others, went and did what he had to do to save his homeland from genocidal invaders and got shot in the face for it and then tried to survive and did survive the rest of his life dealing with the ramifications of what had happened. And in the process, he and his compatriots likely saved Finland. And, you know, obviously this completely transformed his life and likely not for the better. But I don't blame his actions for that. I blame Stalin for that, just clearly and simply. It's worth talking about the rest of Finnish history in World War II, though. Because it's one of the messiest political webs I've ever seen in my life. I remember once I was like started reading the Finnish history and I was like talking to my, my girlfriend and I was like, you know, when I was like a teenager or whatever. And I was like, well, you Finns, like you never did anything wrong because I'm an American and all, all I come from is I'm a white American. So I come from all we did is wrong. Right. Um, and I don't even mean that. Eh, I guess Civil War was all right when we stopped the Confederacy. But like overall, we're there's not. A couple, there's a couple good. shining moments, but yes. Yeah. Like D-Day and, and <laughs> yeah. D-Day is like, pretty amazing, right? Yeah. There's some yeah. stuff that's good. There's just it's it's moments of good. Po- it, the best thing I ever heard was someone that said mm. to me on InRange, and maybe I don't know if they quoted this or they quoted someone else, but American history is punctuated with doing the right thing after exhausting all the other choices. Yeah, that is it. Yep. Even like trying to stay out of World War II or trying to not abolish slavery. Um, yeah, so uh, I remember so I was talking to my girlfriend about it. And I was like, you didn't do anything wrong in history. And she's like, nope. And then I like saw her a week later. And I was like, you were an Axis power. <laughs> and she's like, ooh, <laughs> like, you got me. And that is, yeah, that is the Finnish attitude about this. They were not technically an Axis power in that they did not sign the, you are an Axis power, what is it, the Tripartite Pact. But, but they were driving around Nazi, Nazi armor, like the Stug 3. In fact, if you go to the Finnish Armor Museum, there's a <laughs> bunch of what would have been like German era Nazi technology tanks and uh-huh. um, their helmets are the Stahlhelm, right? They're yeah. using all of this German gear because yeah. the Germans were supplementing their war effort against the Soviets, seeing it, you know, because at that point the Germans were clearly losing on the Eastern Front, always yeah. were, um, really. Um, they were losing from day they one, they like... just didn't know it yet. Yeah, okay. And, um, but giving a bunch of gear to the Finns was like they saw the Finns as, their, as one of the few allies that was actually successful. Yeah. against the Soviets. And so, yeah, they used a lot of Nazi equipment and met with Nazi leaders. There's oh, yeah, no, totally. notes about Mannerheim meeting with uh, with Himmler. Yeah. And it's interesting. And they talk about the tactics of the war. And then there's a quote, and I'm paraphrasing, mm-hmm. where later Mannerheim was like, what an unimpressive man. <laughs> so they, they, they had this weird relationship in which they used the gear and were allies, but didn't necessarily like it. Yeah, and I'm going to talk about some of that because they, yeah, it's okay. So Hitler sees Stalin fail to conquer this tiny, sparsely, sparsely populated Finland. And suddenly Hitler gets an idea. And the idea is what if Stalin is a fucking pushover? Um, this turned out to be an incorrect assessment of the situation. Luckily for the rest of the world, 
A year or so later, on June 22nd, 1941, Hitler betrayed his friend Stalin and invaded in Operation Barbarossa. Basically, Germany had no oil production and didn't want to rely on foreign aid. That is the, the quickest version I've ever heard that seemed to make sense to me. Yeah, I think there's a quote from Hitler where he essentially said, you kick in the door and the whole rotten structure will come falling down. Yeah, it worked just as well as it did for Napoleon. Um, don't invade Finland in the winter and don't invade the USSR. Basic rules of life. Um, or Russia, whatever. Okay, and so Finland helped Germany invade the USSR. Uh, Finland joined World War II on the side of Nazi Germany in what is called the Continuation War. For three years, they fought against the USSR and helped the Nazis do the same. They let Nazis set up bases and launch attacks and ship from their territory. They never officially joined the Axis Club. They have the odd distinction of being the only German ally to remain a democracy during the war. All right, here's where it gets real wild from my point of view. During the Finnish far right had a lot of Jewish leaders. And the leftists didn't hate the Jews either. So Finland was on World War II on the side of the Nazis which means that Finnish Jews were in World War II on the side of the Nazis. The Finnish soldiers had a field synagogue at the front so that they could keep going to synagogue. It's probably the only synagogue for soldiers fighting alongside Hitler. History is so fucking messy. Finland didn't deport its Jews. At one point, someone in the Finnish government turned over eight out of 500 refugees, and the rest of the Finnish government like flipped the fuck out and was like, this is not happening. Several Jewish officers were offered the German Iron Cross. They did not accept it. They were probably like, what the fuck? Oh, God. What the fuck is happening? Oh, God. I can't imagine being a Finn in World War II and not just spending the entire time being like, what the fuck is happening? Over and over, the Finnish government, especially the Social Democrats, who were allies with Germany, uh, were like, hey, once again, we're not Hitler's allies. We're co-belligerents in a war, right? And that is their line. Um, other Finns are like, fuck yeah, being Hitler's ally rules. And they're like fighting for like greater Finland and shit. Like um, most Finnish historians agree that it's fair to refer to Finland as a German ally for most of World War II. But there's a lot of tension. Most Finns were fighting to reclaim the 1939 border. They just wanted back what they had just lost. Other folks wanted greater Finland, which involved conquering all the places the Finnic people traditionally lived, like Ingria and therefore St. Petersburg. Leningrad. When the Finnish soldiers passed the 1939 lines in December 1941, some soldiers started basically being like, oh shit, are we the baddies? Um, because they're no longer reclaiming territory. They are now invaders. The Finnish top general, Mannerheim, is that his name? Um, Mannerheim. Mannerheim. Uh, at one point, he refuses to attack Leningrad. And there's like historical argument about whether or not the Finns participated in the siege of Leningrad. And the fact that historians don't know this is wild to me. That is a not a small thing, you know? No, it's a huge thing. The Siege of Leningrad was horrendous. And so yeah. to not be able to ascertain that is a weird, yeah. I don't know. I got to say, when, every time I run into something in my historical work, whether mm -hmm. it's this recent or older, because World War II is recent, um, when something like that isn't known, my... My little antenna goes up and it feels like something that's been suppressed. That's Finland is trying really hard to come out of this clean. They're trying as hard as possible to be the best Nazi allies that have ever happened. Not the best as in the most allied with Nazis, but the least allied with Nazis. And so they're playing up a lot of this stuff. But it also, but some of it is true. You know, 
but it doesn't make it okay. And that's what's so interesting to me about this. Finland maintained relations not with the Nazi occupation government of Norway, but with the government in exile of Norway. And they tried really hard to play both sides. They weren't starving to death because they were getting German grain, but they were making like secret deals with Western powers to be like, hey, like we promise we won't do this or that attack in the USSR. We promise we won't go along with this particular part of it. Um, Or this is all Finland trying to cover its ass in history books. The Eastern Front didn't go well for anyone. The Finns had, hadn't really been big on the war ever since they'd hit their old territory and reclaimed it. After the fail of the Battle of Stalingrad in 1943, the Finns formed a new government, mostly concerned with how to get the fuck out of the war. The Soviet Union kept offering them peace terms, which involved taking even more Finnish territory. And basically, the Finns felt like they couldn't say yes to it because Stalin genocides them, right? Or because of pride. But yeah, they... They didn't know what the fuck to do, seems to be the impression. But in 1944, the Finns were beat. The Soviets successfully invaded them right back, and they're just like, the Finns are in no position to be picky about the terms anymore, right? So they sign a peace treaty with the USSR on September 19th, 1944. They lose even more territory than the 1940 line. Um, But once again, their fierce defense, once the war turned, might have been part of why they didn't lose it all. I don't really know. Then... Finland joins the war again, this time on the Allied side. Um, and they go to war against Hitler in the Lapland War. It's not like a, they're not like invading Germany, right? But they are like militarily shooting the Nazis who aren't leaving uh, Lapland, the northern part of Finland. So you have the same folks who fought the Soviets, then alongside the Nazis, marched up to northern Finland and did a war against the Nazis. The Nazis are fucks, so they did scorched earth, they burned everything, they landmined everything, which of course mostly fucks up the indigenous Sami people, who were part of all of these wars on all of the sides, including the bad sides, um, with reindeer-pulled sledges, which is cool. The communists, uh, they weren't fucking around with the continuous... The, the communists in Finland weren't fucking around with the continuation war. When I was talking earlier about how the communists went and joined the winter war to fight against the Soviet invasion, when it came time to be allies with the Nazis, they were like, fuck no, right? The far left in Finland fought against the Finnish government. It fought against the the, the Nazi allied government. Uh, hundreds of leftists were arrested and many were executed for fighting against the Finnish government because you can't be allied with fucking Hitler. After the war, anti-communism was turned into right-wingness, um, and Finland took a turn to the right. By the late 60s, you get anarchist groups like the Winnie the Pooh Society, who used folklore and mythology to talk about leftism, which did not single-handedly bring leftism back to Finland. I'm just including it because when you run across an anarchist group called Winnie the Pooh Society, you have to include it in your script if you're Margaret Kiljoy. And that's Finland and Simo. Next week, we're going to talk about a sniper on the opposite side, Ludmila Pavelchenko, who fought the Nazis more consistently the entire time because the Nazis were the ones invading her country. And she fought Soviet sexism along the way. She became close personal friends with Eleanor Roosevelt, First Lady of the United States. And we get to talk about more messy history on cool people did cool stuff. You have anything more about like or anything major I missed or 
No, it's just so wild, isn't it? I just it's like I think about it and it's in a smaller context. It was a couple of years ago when I was in Finland. There's this sounds off topic, but it isn't. There's this really interesting, strange art complex north of Helsinki, a couple hours drive, and it's this weird statuary with a bunch of statues with filled with dentures and maybe human teeth. You can look it up on Atlas Obscura. It's I'm saying. Okay. But it's right on the Finnish Russian border. And this is of course before the current conflict was going on in Ukraine that forced, not forced, finally got things to change where Finland is now part of NATO. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, um, it's right there on the border. And this was, there was this barbed wire fence and this sign in, in in Finnish and Russian about the gigantic minefield that existed just east of that. Oh, so you're standing in the statuary and like a few feet away is a minefield. And that was a couple of years ago. And that's an example of the, of the feeling um, in Finland about they're Russian neighbors. And of course yeah. now with what's happening with Ukraine, that, that feeling is um, not just justified, legitimately concerning. Like there's a real, real thing there yeah. that they experienced once before. And they look at what's going on now and they see it like, that's not that different. And who knows if it's next us next again. Right. So um, I think that that has shaped so much Finnish culture. And I think the winter war and continuation war has shaped Finnish culture, not just from a military perspective, not just from a, from a from a from a war type perspective, but in how they just approach life, like compulsory service, a lot of people are reservists still. Mm-hmm. They have a shooting culture now called the SRA, not the same ones in the US, <laughs> SRA, and they uh, they go out and they practice and train, and um, all of that is the idea that they're trying to be potentially ready if the Russians did it again. And I think that that's part of the psyche, and I think that that trickles down into even other simple things like how you prepare for winter or your food stores or other things. And it still affects them now. Okay. I have a question though, about standing next to a minefield. Did you have intrusive thoughts about wanting to throw rocks into the minefield? Yes. How do you not have that as a human being? I can't imagine otherwise. That seems like the natural order of things. Yeah. Well, also the natural order of things is watching in range TV. Do you want to talk about that? Or something else? Yeah, I mean, uh, sure. That's the, I mean, I don't know if that's part of the natural order, but it's no, it's not. I'm just reality. trying to, yeah, make weird <laughs> transitions. No, I like. I do it. it in regular conversation now, and my friends are like, "You're not recording. You don't have to make transitions." Yeah. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> You're a podcaster. <laughs> I know. Being a content creator, it is nice to know people want to watch your work or listen to your work or consume your work because it has value to them. And hopefully that's the case. So yeah. uh, InRange TV, you can find InRange TV at inrange.tv, which is my website. And from there, you can find all this, the different distribution points. Predominantly, most people watch on YouTube. And it is a, I, I always hesitate to call it a firearms channel, although it is. We have a lot of gun content, a lot of competition content, but it's mixed in with history and culture, and hopefully that shapes the narrative in a way that it's unique and um, is more about community and humanity than it is about glorification of the horrors. And so uh, it's also very much about um, where firearms, like messy history like this, which is where um, firearms have been used in what I I call intentionally induced amnesia events where people don't know about it um, because it's been left out of the general cultural narrative uh, to yeah. do amazing things and save lives. And there are people alive today because they had a gun. And we don't talk about that as much, as much as we talk about the times where people have been lost to them. But it's a difficult and messy topic. Anyways, if you like that approach to it, inrange.tv. Yeah. 
Um, and I do like that approach, and I suggest people listen to it. Um, the history of uh, one of the things that comes up over and over again on the show is people fighting and dying literally to just find small arms. Um, you know, uh, so many times access to small arms is the difference between uh, being wiped out as a culture and not. Um, it's not a great system by which to wage a war, but it is a great system by which to offer community defense, which can make all of the difference of being a spiky target versus a not spiky target. But it's also complicated, and I'm, it's more than I can get into right now. Uh, obviously, choosing to be armed is a very personal choice with a lot of variables. Um, but, uh, okay, I want to plug... I wrote a book a while ago called A Country of Ghosts. It's an anarchist utopia book, and it's about some people in some mountains defending themselves on skis and rifles against it's like an against an invading army. And it is absolutely people are like, wow, what is your inspiration on this? And I'm like, I was a finophile uh, as a kid. I read about the Winter War. It was very influential on me. Um, I had to at some point do something with people with rifles and skis. And it's called A Country of Ghosts. That is not the part of it that is what most people think about. But I'll plug that. The most recent publisher of it is AK Press. Uh, and has a fantasy city painted on for the cover. And I was like so excited. It's my first like fantasy city painting on a cover. And I actually am probably going to write a book with a dragon in it. Literally just so that I can have a book of mine with a painted dragon on the cover at some point in my life. Sophie, what do you got? Uh, just at Cool Zone Media. Fuck yeah. On the things. Next week, we're going to talk about more of this shit. And it's going to be good. Talk to you then. Bye. Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts on Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.